Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. So we have a special guest today, the legend Jay Scott. And uh, super excited because this guy has, I've, I've read both of his books in the past, um, the, the book on estimating rehab costs, and then the book on flipping houses, and tremendously, just nothing but value in both of these books. He's been featured on Bigger Pockets a uh, handful of times <laughs> and, uh, and does uh, public speaking. Um, but uh, basically, a full time real estate investor that has specialized in rehabs in single family homes, so fix and flips. And Jay and his wife, Carol, they started their business back in 2008, correct? Yep, that's correct. And uh, have done well over $10 million in. Uh, in residential real estate, I think we're up to about forty-five million at this point. Forty-five million, okay, forty-five million, and um, and Jay, I mean, you can learn more about his flipping business on his blog at one two three flip dot com. Gotcha. Is there any? Is there anywhere else that uh, people can reach out to you and yeah. learn more? So uh, Facebook is a great place. So I'm pretty active on Facebook. I post a lot, write some articles and stuff. So my. Uh, my username on Facebook is J Scott Investor. Letter J Scott Investor. All right, awesome. So Jay, let me just first off thank you so so much for jumping on here. I truly appreciate it. Like I said, I, I've read uh, your books in the past. Checked uh, checked out you a lot on Bigger Pockets or um, you know other places on on your website. And uh, in the beginning, when I was first getting started, I didn't have a mentor or a coach, and I was doing it kind of lonesome. And a lot of your expertise that you were pushing out on your books uh, has helped me tremendously. So truly appreciate you jumping on here. I appreciate that. Thanks. Cool. So for anybody out there that doesn't know exactly who you are, do you mind uh, just diving into exactly, you know, a little bit deeper on who you are and, uh, and what you and your wife, Carol, have built? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my wife and I met in California about 10 years ago, or I guess it was about 15 years ago now. Uh, what part? Uh, we were in Northern California, so uh, okay. Bay Area. Okay. And uh, we both worked in the tech industry. We were both working ridiculous hours and uh, wasn't really conducive to starting a family. So when we decided to get married back in 2008, we said, let's, uh, let's ditch the, uh, the full-time jobs and figure out something different that would allow us to kind of put our life first and our family first. And um, so we moved back to the East Coast, where we were both from, and we settled down in Atlanta and... Somehow or another, we fell into flipping houses. So we, we flipped our first house in August of 2008. And it really, we didn't start it as a business. We just, uh, my wife decided she felt like flipping a house and thought it would be fun to do. So uh, we bought one. And then a week later, we bought another one. And two weeks after that, we bought our third. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And uh, before we knew it, that was kind of our next, that was our business. And uh, so we kind of fell in without really thinking about it first, but uh, we were in a good place at a good time. And uh, here we are 10 years later, we've done about uh, 200 flips and we've 
branched out into multifamily and lending and notes and um, some commercial stuff and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So we're kind of doing everything these days. I love it. So what is, what does your portfolio currently look like? If you don't mind me asking. Sure. Um, so right now we have about 60 units of multifamily or uh, I shouldn't say multifamily, buy and hold, which is a, a combination of multifamily and, and single family. Okay. Uh, we've actually are in the process of selling a lot of that off. Um, just uh, where we are in the market cycle, we think there's a good opportunity to sell, uh, take some profits and then uh, wait for some good deals to come along when the market changes. Um, and on the flipping side, for the most part these days, most of our flips are with partners. So we're not doing a whole lot uh, through our own business flipping houses. We're not managing contractors and, and actually going out to, to job sites day to day. We're mostly doing that through, through partners. So we have people that are finding the deals, that are managing the deals. We're adding some, uh, some value helping and, uh, and putting in money. Okay, awesome. So, and then we're doing some stuff on the note side and, and investing in some other people's deals and things like that. I love it. Smart man. Staying busy. <laughs> yeah. So I know uh, when we spoke last week or a few weeks ago on the phone, you know, this year is kind of uh, a toss up in the air of, you know, you, you have a lot of different options going on right now. Have, have you got any more clarity of, uh, you know, where this year could potentially take you? Yeah, so um, I think we will probably slow down from flipping or we've already slowed down from flipping um, and uh, basically be opportunistic there. So one of the things we found in our business, we don't like to be out managing contractors day to day and actually at the properties. We like to have a team of people that are doing that. Yeah. And for us to be able to, um, to make it worthwhile to put together a team and, and pay for a team to do that, we need to be doing at least 15 or 20 flips a year. So for us, if we can't do 15 or 20 flips a year in one particular market, it's actually easier for us to do zero. Um, mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it's just from a scaling perspective, we end up spending a lot of our time doing the stuff that we'd rather have other people do. Um, so instead of, uh, because in a lot of markets that we're working in these days, we're not finding 15 or 20 deals a year. Um, so we're kind of slowing down on that. And so for this year, at least, we're gonna slow down and let our flips be handled by partners. Um, we're still looking for good multifamily deals. We are looking for more notes. So we'll be doing more note buying this year. Um, and uh, we're probably going to be doing some, some more business type stuff outside of in the real estate world, but outside of the investing space. So I'm, I'm not going to announce anything now, but uh, my wife and I are looking to kind of branch out and uh, build a, a more of a real estate business um, outside of just investing. Okay. Awesome. It's a lot of respect right there. That's awesome. So now you're talking about scaling back a little bit. If you can't do 15 to 20 deals at a time, it's just not, it's yeah. not uh, worth it at the, at the time. And 15, uh, 15 or 20 a year, 15, 20 a year. Gotcha. Yeah. And then um, as well as uh, you know, selling off some of your portfolio right now so you can wait for the market. Let's talk about the market for a second, because that is, that's something that everybody a lot of people out there are kind of, you know, uh, it, it, it's a big topic right now yeah. of what the, what the market has done this year, kind of leveling out, yep. you know, houses are on the market a little bit longer now. Um, they're not getting the full uh, price that, you know, people have anticipated in the past. So how do you feel about the market? Yeah. So I'm a big proponent of, you can make money in real estate at any part of the market cycle. Oh, true. But 
there are going to be certain parts of, of the cycle where certain strategies are going to work better, certain tactics are going to work better. And so you need to be aware of kind of where we are, where we're headed, and make sure that you're modifying your strategies and your tactics appropriately. So mm -hmm. what I tell people now is now's a great time to flip. Um, there's nothing wrong with flipping now, but as a house flipper these days, when I am doing deals and when I'm partnering with people on deals, what I'm recommending is that people change up their strategies um, just to be more uh, in line with what the market is potentially going to do and what the market's offering. So a year or two or three ago, I would have told people, great time to be building new construction, great time to be doing big flips like uh, additions or pop tops where you add a second story, things like that. These days, I'm telling people, don't do those projects that are going to take you a year or 18 months to do because we don't know where the market might be in a year or 18 months. For sure. So I'm recommending people stick with projects that are you're going to be into and out of in three, four, five months. Um, because even if the market does start to turn down, we're probably not going to see a huge hit in, in the next three or four or five months. Mm. So focus on the shorter projects. Um, next, I'm telling people, make sure you have decent margins. So if you're working in a market where you think the market uh, the real estate values could drop 20%. Make sure you go into every flip with the, um, with the expectation that you're going to make at least 20% on that deal. So if the worst case does happen and the market drops 20%, you're breaking even on that deal as opposed to losing money. So know your market, know what the market's likely to do in a worst case situation. And you can figure that out by going and look at what values did in 2008. Look at what values did in, in 2001. Look at what values did in, in 1991. So the last three major recessions and see in this market, did values drop 5% or did values drop 50%? Mm. And if you're in a market where values drop 50%, you obviously need to be more cautious than if you're in a market where mm. in the last couple of recessions, values have only dropped five or 10%. So be aware of what market you're in. Okay. Um, now, yeah. what, what, are, what are you predicting, uh, you know, what the, the next market change is going to kind of bring? So the market is a little bit different, but I mean, um, for the most yeah, part, I guess. I, I'm comfortable saying that I think there's going to be a downturn in the next six to 18 months. Um, that said, I'm never comfortable saying how bad of a downturn I think it's going to be. I, I think it, it's a lot easier to predict when the changes are going to happen. It's a lot harder to predict how bad it's going to be. And I mean, you look at some really notable and respected economists and some of them will tell you, yeah, this recession isn't going to be anywhere near what it was in 2008. And then you look at other ones that are just as respectable, just as accomplished. And they say, yeah, I think it's going to be 10 times worse than 2008. Mm. So I, I don't know how you can gauge how bad of a recession a recession is going to be. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of it really depends on um, just little variables that kind of add up over time. So I, I tell people, don't try and figure out how bad it's going to be. More importantly, try and figure out when it's coming and just modify your business and your strategies so that you're going to make money, whether it's just a little blip or whether it's a major depression. And mm. if you modify your strategies correctly, if you're careful, um, you can you can make money or at least not lose money, regardless of how bad it might be. That's so true. So just you know, calculate your risk factor a little bit and adjust your numbers accordingly uh, yeah. to to be on the safe side. 
Yeah, a lot of people spent the last five or six or seven years figuring out how to maximize their returns, even if it meant uh, a little bit higher risk. Yeah. When you get into this part of the cycle, I, I tell people focus on risk first and return second. So make sure whatever you're doing is, is mitigating the risk first. And then after risk is mitigated, then you can focus on how to maximize your returns. Yeah, I love that. Now, is there anything that you would recommend, I guess, to kind of stay recession proof? Yeah. Um, so like I said, you, you have to be modifying your strategies. Um, so if you're flipping, again, keep your project short. Um, make sure you know what your margins are and what your worst case scenario in your market is. Um, a good recession proof flipping strategy is to focus on good school districts. So mm. Uh, houses in good school districts tend to drop um, a lot less than houses in bad school districts. So that's, that's definitely something you should be doing there. Um, focus on reducing your leverage. So if you're going out and getting hard money loans, um, a lot of flippers I know for the last few years would go out and get loans for 100% of the, uh, the purchase and the, and the rehab costs. And there's nothing wrong with that. But this time in the cycle, if you think the market might drop 10 or 15%, well, try and keep your loan to value ratios at, at most 85 or 90% so that if you lose 10% in value, you're mm -hmm. not underwater on the property. Um, on the buy and hold side, um, just model in um, higher vacancies and lower rents because in a lot of markets, we're going to see higher vacancies and lower rents. So if I'm buying a rental property today, um, when I'm doing my, my analysis and I'm looking at how much rental income I'm going to get from this property, I'd tell myself, well, let's assume I'm getting 10% less than what I expected. And when I'm looking at the vacancy that I expect based on a certain area, I say, well, let's assume I'm seeing a 10% higher in vacancy. Instead of 8%, let's assume I'm seeing 9% or 10% vacancy. Um, and if the numbers still work, then I can be confident that in a year or two or three, when we hit a downturn and we are seeing lower market rents and we are seeing higher vacancies, that this is still going to be a good deal. Yeah, that's so um, good. Yeah. Um, for people that are in the commercial world or that are buying more commercial type properties, look at things like self-storage and, uh, and mobile home parks. Those tend to be pretty recession proof. Um, if you're buying buy and hold, if you're buying rentals, multifamily rentals, consider going down to like class C properties because as you go down in class, you tend to be more recession proof in terms of, uh, in terms of income. So class C properties are going to tend to be more recession proof than class B properties. Class B properties are going to be more recession proof than class A properties. Mm. Uh, so if you're in buy and hold space in the multifamily space, move down in, in property type. So there's all kinds of things you can do to be, to kind of recession proof your business. Um, and sometimes it's changing strategies like going from flipping to buy and hold or flipping to notes or buy and hold to commercial, whatever it is. And sometimes it's staying within the same strategy, but just changing up your tactics um, and being more careful. That's so good. I love it. Yeah, there's so many like gold pieces right there that I didn't even, uh, you know, I didn't even think about. So that's awesome. Um, now, Emerging markets. I want to talk about that for a second because yeah. as, as the market starts changing and obviously an emerging market is something that you're going to want to find anyway for the long run if, if you're planting your feet there. Yeah. Um, you know, how, do you, how do you go about finding some upcoming markets? Yeah. So um, if we're talking about buy and hold, and I think um, the actual market influences are more important for buy and hold than flipping. Mm -hmm. We can actually start with flipping. If you're flipping houses, the big things that I want to look for um, in a market are going to be, one, I'm going to look at housing supply. 
So I don't care if it's three months of supply or eight months of supply, but what I want to see is that supply is decreasing, which means houses are selling faster. Yeah. So I want to see that if, if in one particular market, um, I'd rather go to a market that's gone from like 10 months of housing supply to eight months of housing supply, which means there was a whole lot of supply that wasn't selling to now there's still a lot, but not as much Yeah. Um, versus a market that was three months of housing supply up to five months of housing supply. That market right now is still selling houses faster, but the trend is in the, in the wrong direction. Yeah, so for sure. Th things are slowing down. So I want to see things speeding up in terms of, of, of housing sales. I want to see lower days on market, not higher days on market. So that's number one. Um, I actually like areas that have a decent number of, of investors. So what we're finding these days is if you're investing in an area that doesn't have any other investors, it's probably not a worthwhile area. There aren't too many uh, blue sky uh, investing areas in this country right now because investing has gotten so big over the last few years. Investors have gotten um, so determined to find properties that every good market in the country, there are going to be at least a few investors there. Yeah. So if you go into a market and you're like basically the only investor, you might want to ask yourself why. Um, not saying it's impossible to find those markets, but it, it's probably, uh, if you're the only investor in a the market, there's probably a reason for it. Um, what else? I like to look at the uh, price ratio between distressed sales and retail sales. So if you're looking at kind of the list of foreclosures um, and then you look at the same types of houses in the exact same area, but that have been rehabbed, I want to see a big disparity between the prices of each of those. I want to see that the that the, uh, the foreclosures are probably about 50% of the retail sales. So that tells me that there's a large margin um, between what I can buy distressed properties for and what I can sell rehab properties for. Yeah. If you go into an area and the average foreclosure price for a particular type of house in that area is 100000 and the average um, price for the same type of house but rehabbed in that area is 120000 there's not a lot of margin between distressed and, and, and retail sales. You're not going to be able to make much money. Um, but if the, if, the, uh, if the foreclosed properties are selling for 100K and the rehab properties are selling for 250, well, that's probably a pretty good area. There's some good differences. There's some good, there, there's some good, good ratios there between distressed sales and retail sales. Um, what else? Um, and then I like to look at just general market indicators and trends. And this kind of goes into the, uh, the, the buy and hold side of things. Um, when, when you're looking at a buy and hold um, market, what you're really looking for is growth. And there are three types of growth I typically look for when I'm looking for a new buy and hold market. I want to see job growth. Yep. So I want to see employers moving in and people basically unemployment going down. Yep. So that tells me that employers need employees. And so that's going to encourage people to move into that area because they're going to be able to get jobs. And it's yep. going to discourage people from moving out of the area because they can't find jobs. Mm -hmm. so, so I want to see job growth. I want to see wage growth. So I want to see those jobs, not just, um, I don't want to see big companies that normally hire engineers hiring a lot of entry level people. Yes. I want to see companies that are hiring higher level people and paying more to their employees because as people get paid more, obviously they can move out of rental housing and, and in the flip world, they can move out of rental housing 
in, in, into, uh, and into their own homes. But yeah. in the buy and hold world, they can move out from their parents into their own rentals. They can move out with, a, they don't have to have a roommate anymore. They can get their own rental space. Um, so I want to see wage growth. And then third, I want to see population growth. Mm-hmm. So, and typically population growth is going to be correlated to job growth, but not always. So a lot of areas, they have um, a lot of immigration. And uh, if you're a buy and hold investor, you should love immigration because immigration typically means that, that there's going to be a, a larger demographic for, for your rentals, yep. um, regardless of what class you're in. Um, if you're A class, B class, C class rentals, immigration is going to be great for, for you as a buy and hold investor. Um, so those are the three big things I look for um, when I'm, I'm considering a buy and hold market. Now, with population growth, is there a certain number um, that you won't go below, like 50,000? or Because uh, I started seeing some opportunities in this one area yesterday, and then I saw the, the, job, or the, the population growth, and it was extremely low. So I don't care if a, if a market has 50,000 50, people or 5 million people. I want to know that tomorrow it's going to have more than it had today. For sure. Um, so if, if, if basically the, the census is telling me that this area is going to have more people in five years than it has today, that's important to me um, mm. because that means people are moving in. And typically those things snowball. So if an area has a little bit of population growth today, that population growth is going to drive employment growth. More employers are going to come in because there's a, a larger potential workforce. And as more employers come in, that brings more people in and more people brings more jobs and more jobs bring brings more people and that whole thing snowballs. And what you'll typically see is, is that in 10 years, population growth will have be faster than it is today. Just the opposite in markets where we're seeing loss of, of population. So people moving out of an area means businesses are going to move out of the area. Businesses moving out means more people are going to move out and that kind of snowballs in the, in the wrong direction. Mm. Um, so um, I, I like to look, there's, there's two places. So you can look at census.gov, which is the, census, the National Census Bureau, and uh, citydata.com. City-data.com has some good data there on population growth as well. So if I see that a particular area is, is going to have growth over the next couple of years, if I see employers moving in, talk, go, go, look at, go down to the Chamber of Commerce um, and talk to people at the Chamber of Commerce and, and see if they're um, if, if their enrollment is going up or down and ask them, are businesses moving in or out? Are there good tax benefits for businesses in that area or not? Um, those are all the types of things you can look at as a buy and hold investor because really it boils down to, to growth. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, checking in with the local city council and um, it is really awesome. So is there any other websites that you would recommend that you typically, you know, uh, gather all this information on? City so, data is, is the main site that I typically use for mine. Yeah, I like city data. I like census.gov. Um, Zillow and Trulia have some good, um, some, some good numbers um, around crime. Um, okay. So you can actually find some good crime numbers on there. Um, I always recommend people, like if you're looking at a new area, figure out the zip code, call a couple of the police stations in that zip code um, and just ask them what the crime trends are doing because they have, they obviously are boots on the ground. They know what's going on and typically they're not going to lie to you. Yeah. I, I've, I've recommended this and I was just actually about to mention that, um, you know, call the, the, the chief in the area or whatever, the, um, the sergeant and, yep. and ask them. I, I've had several meetings with, uh, with mine in my local area in the area that I invest in Ohio. And uh, it's been definitely beneficial. 
Yeah, absolutely. They'll give you a lot of information on, on the area and, and um, it can always be a good, a good final, like, uh, uh, go, no go decision. So everything yeah. looks good for everything that looks good from the statistics. And then you go talk to somebody at the police station and they're like, yeah, crime's gotten really bad around here. There were four murders last week. And you're like, yeah. okay. You know, I, uh, speaking with, um, the, the police officer at the time, that really helped me out on one of my first deals because I was looking on this street and he was like, I would highly recommend any area, but that street. And I was like, Oh, perfect. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So it, it really, uh, it saved my asset in one sense or another. Um, but okay. So let's talk about running your numbers for a second. Yep. Um, how do you, you know, obviously there's uh, a dozen ways to run numbers out there and depends on, you know, what we are, uh, putting under the radar. Um, but as far as a fix and flip, because that's the, the main thing that you kind of started off in, yep. uh, how do you go about running your numbers? Yeah, for me, it's a, a simple formula. So, um, I determine the maximum amount I can pay for a property by taking the resale value. So whatever you can resell it for, subtract out the rehab costs, subtract out my fixed costs, which are basically all my, my purchase costs, holding costs and selling costs, and then subtract out my desired profit. So for example, let's say I could sell a property. I knew I could sell a property for $200,000. Now let, let's just slow it up for a second. So how do you find out exactly, you know, the, the comps in the area, you know, what you are truly going to be able to sell it for? Yeah. So you have to know a good real estate agent. Mm -hmm. uh, I recommend that, that new investors consider getting their real estate license. Um, that gets them access to the MLS. That means they can pull their own comp data. Uh, but barring that, if you, if you don't have access to the MLS, don't use Zillow, don't use Trulia, don't just ask your friends, don't, yeah. go, by, don't go by gut feel, especially, do in today, especially in today's market where things are getting a lot more volatile than they were a year or two or three ago. A couple of years ago, you could basically take a guess at what the resale value would be. And even if you were wrong, by the time you were going to resell the property six months later, the value has gone up and you're probably fine. Mm -hmm. these days, if, if you take a guess and you're wrong, it's unlikely that in six months, the, the, the value is going to have gone up 10%. So you want to be really accurate today. So talk to a great real estate agent that knows the area um, or better yet, get your real estate license and get your own access to the MLS. Yeah. I've, I've used to, uh, you know, build relationships and then use somebody's uh, login. And I don't necessarily recommend that way, but uh, there's also ways around it that you can, I believe pay a small fee to get access as well. Yeah. There are certain States that will let you become like an assistant to a real estate agent and you can yeah. get access that way. Um, there are some States that will give you for a fee limited access to data. Um, and then there are some States that are really like you have to be a licensed agent or broker or they will not give it to you. Yeah, uh, exactly. There are, some, there are some States that will give access to appraisers um, or a lot of States will give access to appraisers. So if you know an appraiser, that might be good as well. Mm -hmm. um, your appraisal license that's another way to do it um but one way or another don't don't guess yeah no no guessing no gut feelings around here that will definitely throw off the numbers pretty quickly me and jennifer are actually uh following exactly your steps with the the power couple between you and your wife carol and she just got her her license the other day so awesome yes it's, it's gonna work out pretty swell yeah we've we found having our real estate license it, it, there's so many benefits and um, being able to pull comps is just one of them. Yeah, but I do highly recommend, you know, if um, 
there, there's so many benefits on that side, but definitely identify, um, you know, what side you want to be on, I guess, as far as if you are truly want to be an investor, you know, you, it's not needed whatsoever to get your, you know, your license to become an okay. agent. A lot of people out there that I speak with at first, they think, you know, they need to get their, their license to become an agent before they actually uh, can start investing in some real estate. Absolutely not. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so breaking down the numbers, you find the comps um, and then uh, coming together with exactly your, your estimated uh, cost on repair. Yep. Do you mind breaking that down a little bit? I know it can get very detailed, but. Yeah. So um, I'm a big fan of to get an accurate estimate, uh, uh, rehab estimate, you need to walk the house and you need to put together a detailed scope of work. Mm-hmm. So I, know, I know a lot of people that will say, well, can I just estimate per square foot or can I just say, here's what a typical rehab in this area costs. And I tell people that's rarely going to work. Um, I, I use the example that, um, you and I could be renovating pretty much the same type of house. Um, but we're not going to have the same costs. So you're in California, so you're going to have much higher labor costs than I am. You might, you you might choose to use much higher finishes. So you might want to use granite and marble and hardwood and gold, real gold chandeliers. I might want to use laminate and carpet and, uh, and cheap light fixtures. Um, so our material costs are going to be different. That's right. I'm going to pay more in the winter than you are because the weather's bad and, and people don't like to work in the winter and our building codes are different. So if I have to put a roof on my house because of the snow, it's going to be different than the cost for you putting a roof on your house. Yep. Uh, you might be a much better negotiator than I am. So you might get 20% off the, the price just by being a better negotiator than I am. Um, there's so many things that influence the cost of a renovation that I never recommend saying, okay, I'm going to guess by per square foot or yeah. a bathroom costs this much or a kitchen costs this much. You walk into a house and, and, I, and like, like you mentioned, I wrote a book on the topic, um, yeah. the, the estimating uh, rehab book. And basically in that book, um, I break it down as there are 25, thank you. Um, there are 25 major components to a rehab and it's everything from roof to your gutter system to siding, exterior paint, interior paint, HVAC, electrical, uh, plumbing, floors, cabinetry, carpentry, blah, 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 blah. 25 major components. Each of those components you can break down into a dozen or two dozen different tasks that are most common. So, um, for example, for electrical, it could be upgrading the service or replacing the panel or adding a new circuit or adding a new light or adding a new outlet. Um, There's about a two dozen different subtasks under electrical. So you're going to want to walk through the house and you're going to say, okay, let's take a look at the panel. Is this good or does this need to be replaced? Is the service big enough? Is a hundred amp service enough or do I need to upgrade to 200 amp service? Do I have to run new outlets to this part of the house? How many light fixtures am I going to replace? How many switches am I going to replace? How many outlet covers am I going to replace? And you can basically go through the list, the lists of subtasks, and you can say, I need to do this, and this is how many I need. I need to do this, and this is how many I need. Or I don't need to do this, I don't need to do this. And you put together what's called a scope of work, which is basically a detailed list of everything you're going to do in the house, and then you price it out by entry. So if one of the things is I need to replace 18 light fixtures, 
Well, then you go through and you say, okay, my electrician charges me an average of $60 for each light fixture and my average light fixture is going to cost me $40. So there's $1,800 for that line item, replacing mm -hmm. 18 fixtures. Um, and you do that and you build up your, your scope of work and then you price it all out. And that's the right way to get a rehab estimate. And it's not quick. And if you're new at it, it's not easy. But what you'll find is that you go through this process and you spend three or four or five hours doing it on the first one. And then you spend two or three hours doing it on the second one. And then you spend an hour or two on the third one. And you spend a half hour on the fourth one. And by the time you get up to your 10th or 20th or 30th time doing that, you can walk through a house and you can basically do it in your head. Yeah. So I, love I, that. I, I literally spent 12 hours putting together the scope of work, my first project. Yeah. And now I walk into a house and, and 10 minutes I can walk through the house and I'm within 5%. Yeah. Now so. <clears throat> this might be out of your comfort zone. I'm not sure. But um, as far as, you know, would you say as you do more of these, you can, almost look at you know a lot of the pictures if there's enough pictures taken to come up somewhat uh with your with your estimated price yes and no i can certainly come up with the price um, yeah yeah and and that price might be decent but if if i'm walking through a house i'm comfortable in 15 minutes saying i can get within five percent of the actual cost if i'm looking at pictures i might say okay i'm comfortable that i'm within 25 percent yeah. Uh, because when you're looking at pictures, there's so many little things you can't see. There so are. I can walk through a house and, and when I'm walking through a house, I'm looking up because for me, water issues are the biggest concern. So the first thing or the big thing that I'm looking through when I'm walking through a house, especially a second story or the top story of a house is I'm looking up and I'm looking for water stains. Mm. Um, and I could see a hundred pictures of a house and that doesn't mean whoever took those pictures necessarily photographed every, every inch of the ceiling. So I don't know if there are water stains up there. Um, the pictures may not have that corner of the attic that has all the chewed wires and, and, uh, the termite damage. So he may not have taken that picture. Yeah. Um, basically you can't take a picture of every part of, I can look at a water heater and determine in about 10 seconds if a water heater needs to be replaced. Um, but depending on how he took the picture of the water heater, I may not see what I need to see to know. Um, so there's always going to be things that you're going to miss in pictures, but if you get really good at estimating, then yeah, you can look at a picture, you can look at pictures and then say, okay, I'm going to add 25% to that and then be really comfortable with that number. So okay. you just have, you just have your margin of error is going to be busy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know if I was getting cocky or not, but uh, the last several um, deals that I've done, I, I do mine virtually. I'm in yep. here in San Diego. Yep. All my properties are in Ohio, and uh, and I I've done a lot of the, you know, right, right from the start. I can um, after mm -hmm. seeing a, a you know a lot of pictures, like fifty to hundred yep. pictures, I can I can come up very close with where uh, where that estimate's going to be. Yeah. Um, my, my big thing with pictures is sometimes you can miss big things. Um, if, if, uh, if whoever's taking the pictures happen not to take a picture of that bowed basement wall, yeah. and you don't realize that you're going to have to do $15,000 in excavation to, to fix the, uh, the foundation wall. It's well, true. That's, that's something that that's unfortunate, but those yeah. are the risks. So I, I would typically tell somebody if you're going to go off of pictures, nothing wrong with going off of pictures and making an offer. Um, but have a contingency in that offer so that when it's accepted, you can actually get an inspector or somebody you trust out there to give it one final look before you actually move forward.
for sure. Yeah. I had, um, one example of, uh, you know, taking, I guess just going off of, uh, pictures is the agent forgot to send me a picture. She didn't realize, or, uh, it wasn't an agent at the time. It was somebody that I hired to take pictures. They didn't realize that there was uh, a garage in the far back. That was actually a part of mine. Um, so didn't realize that. So it was kind of a bonus, but it was still extra work that I needed to put into the scope of work to, yep. you know, finish some little things here and there. Yep. Uh, so kind of funny, but um, it, it is good. Thank, thankfully, like you said, I, I had an inspector go through and he let me know about it uh, later on. Yep. <laughs> um, cool. So let's talk about hiring contractors yeah. because, uh, you know, some of your tips that you put in your book, um, which one was it? Uh, flipping houses. Yeah, I believe the flipping houses um, really helped me tremendously in the beginning getting started and then uh, and really just going off of referrals after that. Um, instead of kind of just winging it and getting a bunch of people out there. Um, but I know, I know the markets have changed a little bit. So, so, you know, finding contractors, it's still something that here and there I I struggle with and have some learning curves. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, uh, six months ago, I, you know, I, I had the scope of work all detailed, a little bit of transparency issues. Once I went to check out the property. Uh, there was one or two small little things that weren't done, uh, but it was it was my time to pay right then and there. And yep. and the contractor and I both agreed that he would knock those things out. I figured it was small little things. He would be a man of his word, knock it out. I followed through. I wanted to pay him. It was a good amount of money, so I paid him. And then those little things, surprise, surprise, never seemed to get done because he, he has it in his mindset now that, you know, he's doing free work. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, from a negotiating standpoint, once somebody gets paid, they're a lot less likely to, to actually, like you said, from his perspective, it was now free work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in that situation, when I see those things, if I say, okay, it would cost me $250 to get somebody else to come in and do those things, I write him a check for 250 less than, than whatever I owe him. And I say, yep, here's, I, I'll write off the $250 check. And as soon as these things are done, it's, it's yours. I love uh, it. And, and so yeah, sometimes you have to take a risk in this business, especially these days when contractors are, honestly, contractors have the upper hand um, these days. We're just in one of those markets where, um, I hate to admit it, but contractor, we need contractors more than they need us. And yeah. for a long time, 2008 to 2014, it was just the opposite. Um, basically, I had great relationships with contractors. I had contractors that would follow me job to job um, that would do 20, 30, 40 jobs a year for me and my friends um, and not do any other jobs. We basically kept them busy full time. Mm. And that was great. And then it got to the point where they were so busy that, uh, that I was begging them to come do my jobs. And so we're just in a, in a situation these days and it won't last forever, but, but right now we're in a, in a point where um, contractors don't need investors. They can get paid more from homeowners. They can generally deal with less uh, stress from homeowners. A lot of investors are difficult to deal with. Um, so finding contractors, good contractors, is really hard. Now, one thing, my, my favorite tactic or, or one thing I'll say about contractors is um, you only need to find one good one. If you can find one good one, you ask that contractor, hey, who do you recommend? Who, who, yeah. would you, who, who, who else should I call? 
good contractors aren't going to recommend or refer bad contractors because they know it reflects badly on them. So if you can find one really good contractor and ask him for referrals, he's going to refer you to one or two other good ones. And those mm. one or two other good ones are going to refer you to one or two other good ones. And you can honestly build an entire contractor network by finding one really good contractor. That's so, so true. Yeah. So it can be tough to find that one. Yeah. If you find that one, you can, you can honestly you can build your whole network. Yeah. Something that has truly helped me in the past is, uh, you know, when you build relationships over in whatever area that you're investing in, whether they're a contractor or not, building solid relationships with people that have been there for a while and then, you know, picking their brain and using their resources. Absolutely. You know, if, if they have good relationships with uh, certain contractors in the area, they don't want to burn any bridges in between and, and they want to do a great job and, and give you that, you know, friendly discount or, or whatever, you know, make it a win-win situation. Yep, Absolutely. So, um, so that has saved me and helped me tremendously in the past in comparison to my first, my first deal. I, I knew I had to get three estimates, but I, I just looked online and I got, I think I reached out to maybe 15, 12 or 15, uh, different contractors, uh, five showed up and, uh, it quickly narrowed down to two. Um, unfortunately, after a year and two months later, five contractors later, I should have sued probably three of them and a bunch of headache in between on a, on a regular cosmetic deal. After that, I only go with referrals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, I like to say that uh, anytime you make a decision around a, around a contractor, just before you make that decision, ask yourself, is this the decision I would make if I knew I had to fire them tomorrow? Mm. So That's good. People often say, so should I pay this guy 50% up front? And my answer is, would you, what would you do if you knew you had to fire him tomorrow? Um, so good. Uh, because one day, you're going to have to fire him tomorrow. Yeah. That day might not be today or next week or next year, but one day, you're going to have to fire him tomorrow. I love so, that. I've never, I've never thought of that. That's really, really good. Yeah. Um, contractors are difficult. So these days, contracts are a lot more important than they were 10 years ago. Um, they won't always protect you, but uh, I like to have contracts. I like to have my lien waivers. Um, I check references. I make sure every one of my contractors has insurance and is licensed. If they tell me that they've done other investment investor jobs, I ask them for an address and I'll go drive by. And if a property is still vacant, I'll try and get in or I'll call the investor and say, Hey, I'm, I'm talking to the contractor you use for this. Can I come take a look around? Um, yeah. It's homeowners. I, I've called homeowners before and said, hey, so-and-so uh, used you as a referral. Can I come take a look at the work he did? Um, and so due diligence goes a long way. I know a lot of us in, in the real estate world, we don't like to, to spend a whole lot of time driving around looking at work that, our, that contractors have done in the past because it feels like a waste of our time. Um, but think about it this way. If you spend an hour or two doing that and you can save yourself weeks of headache, it's worth it. Oh, it is so, so worth it. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's really great uh, points right there. Now, <clears throat> with, uh, with the scope of work, this is something that I've always been, um, I don't want to overwhelm the contractors yep. sometimes. So I don't want to make it like, deep down, I want to make it as detailed as possible, like mm -hmm. extremely detailed. Uh, just to make it so there, there's no questions asked. And that's how, you know, as an investor, it almost should be just so, you know, you guys can always relay back to, um, to, the, to the scope of work, the contract. But 
have you ever had any contractors that have, you know, an issue with getting overwhelmed or think, wow, this guy's going to be a pain in the ass right from the start? No, if anything, um, contractors seem to appreciate a detailed scope of work. Okay. It means they have an easier, if I, if I tell them I'm going to need um, 120 yards of carpet um, for this job, well, that saves them the effort of having to go measure it and, and try and figure out exactly how much they need. If I've already told them how much they need, they can write a quote without having to, to spend time measuring and pricing it out. I, if I can tell them, I'm going to provide the carpet, I just need you to install 120 yards of carpet, that's easy for them. They'll, they don't have to worry about the, la- the material price and they don't have to worry about figuring out how much labor it is. They know I charge four bucks a, um, a square yard for carpet. You need 120 yards, so great, 500 bucks. Um, that's so and, good. And they prefer that. Um, likewise with other things, if I tell them, like, I want you to replace 23 light fixtures and I want you to add eight can lights. Well, that seems that saves them the time of having to walk through the house and count each of the light fixtures, um, end up making a mistake. Cause, Oh, I missed one in the closet. Um, now I'm telling them what they need to do. They can basically take my scope of work. A lot of times they can take my scope of work. They don't even need to show up at the house. Mm. Um, I try and do it detailed enough that they can say, this is what I charge to replace a light fixture. This is what I charge to replace a dishwasher. This is what I charge to replace all the, the, the supply lines for the plumbing supply lines. Uh, this is what I charge to replace a tub. And they can look at my scope of work and basically just apply their, pl- their prices. They barely need to walk the house with me. I love that. So they appreciate it. And I also appreciate it because I know they're not going to miscount stuff. They're not going to miss stuff and come back and say, Oh, I, I thought we were only replacing two tubs. I didn't see the third tub. Um, Mm. I can say, no, I handed you a scope of work that said three tubs. Now um, the examples that you put in, you know, estimating rehab costs, are those pretty similar to your scope of work? Yeah. So um, the, the spreadsheets that I use in that book, um, are based off of the spreadsheets that I actually use in my business. Okay, awesome. So in, 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 the one, in that book, it actually has lists of tasks, and those are the right down to the, the specific words I use. Yeah, yeah. So that is, I know it's helped me tremendously in the past, and anyone that hasn't actually checked out these books, you're definitely going to want to get your hands on these because, like I said, it will help you tremendously. And there's actually, there's new revised ones that recently just actually uh, dropped, right? Yep. Uh, Bigger Pockets released the new books uh, about two weeks ago and Amazon is releasing the new editions tomorrow. So yeah. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. So, um, so Amazon, everybody can check that out tomorrow. And then uh, within the next week or so, um, or no, in the in the past, they've actually already Bigger Pockets already dropped it. Yep, Bigger Pockets is is selling them now, so they ship right away. And Amazon, you can pre-order right now, and it'll ship tomorrow. Cool, very awesome. So does it does it look any different, or is it very same? I believe it's yeah. a different cover, right? Yeah, it's a different cover. I don't have one with me, um, but yeah, it's uh, we have different covers. Uh, Bigger Pockets kind of uh, made spice it up. Yeah, they made it uh, a little bit more like the rest of their covers in their collection. Yeah, very smart. Okay, cool. I think that's it. I mean, I, I, I could I could keep you here all day. <laughs> I really could, Jay. Uh, I, I truly appreciate all the time you've you've given to to all the listeners out there and being a part of the podcast. I know this is gonna help tremendously so many people. Awesome. And uh and I I know you're a busy man, but um is there anything that the listeners can do to give back to you? 
No. Um, again, uh, connect with me on bigger pocket. Uh, well, connect with me on bigger pockets. Um, if you want, but connect with me on Facebook, J Scott investor. If anybody wants information, like I have a lot of free info on my website, one, two, three flip. Basically we, uh, we chronicle our first 50 deals from like 2008 to 2011 or so. Um, so you can see basically details of, of our first 50 deals on the website. Uh, I have a lot of articles there. And so, yeah, if anybody has any questions, just, uh, shoot me a, shoot me a, a message on Facebook or bigger pockets. Very good. Awesome. Cool. So, uh, Jay, I appreciate you so much, brother. I really do tremendously. And, um, if, if there's anything that I can do to, you know, for you, please let me know. I appreciate um, it. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Yeah. So, uh, for everyone out there, if you guys haven't actually checked out the, the podcast, this is a little behind the scenes right now, but, um, definitely go check out on iTunes. Uh, make sure you're subscribed, leave a review and, uh, send a screenshot of that to me and I will send you my book, uh, action driven, absolutely free. And, uh, and this will help you tremendously. So many different, you know, golden nuggets in here. Uh, a lot of storytelling as well to be able to get to know, know, like, and trust me a little bit more. But, um, with that being said, guys, love you guys all so much. Stay tuned till next time. Stay blessed. This has been another episode of ready, set, go real estate investing podcast brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. Until next time, God bless.